Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. I've got a course coming up on the 25th of October called How to Avoid the 10 Biggest Mistakes That Good Writers Make That Stop Them From Getting Published. Now, writing is unfortunately one of the endeavors in which working hard doesn't guarantee success. You could spend hours daily at the keyboard, but that doesn't mean you're going to be published. Even if you write beautiful sentences and have a great story idea, you still might struggle to land an agent. What am I doing wrong is a question you might be asking yourself more and more. In this three-hour virtual course, we'll look at how to avoid the 10 biggest mistakes that good writers make that stop them from landing an agent and getting published. Go to my website at biancamaray.com, look under the courses tab, and you can book for it there. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I am somebody who does not have an MFA, and I keep hearing about author mentorship programs. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit on the show about how to get accepted into an author mentorship program and what is the value of doing an author mentorship. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
All right. I think this is a kind of a tough one for me to answer from an agent's perspective, to be honest with you. Um, so in terms of mentorships, I'm just, just because as an agent, I just don't have kind of eyeballs into mentorship. So, I mean, I would always, always say that prioritizing beta readers and, you know, local writing groups and, and anytime you can, you can connect organically is obviously going to kind of be the most successful in, in this creative industry. There isn't really kind of a streamlined mentorship program to my knowledge. Again, please correct me if I'm wrong. Any, any listeners, please, please share it on, on socials, but like there would be in like a, a woman in business or, you know, something like that, where it's like, you know, here's, here's the path to how you connect. Really a lot of it is just being involved with the literary community as much as possible. Hi all, thank you so much for your podcast. You ladies have been my constant companions in my earbuds during a slow day in the office. My question is about querying as a person of color. I'm mixed race, but have never sadly been connected to either culture on both sides of my bloodline. Now my protagonist does share my identity and I'm writing a middle grade fantasy, but their identity has nothing to do with the story or the plot. So in my query letter, should I identify myself as a person of color and my lead as a person of color, even if racial identity and culture is not something that I'm actively exploring in the story? Thank you so much. Oh, I like this question. I feel like it's up to you. What would you feel most comfortable? Because that's important, right? Like how comfortable you are talking about your identity in a query letter. Assuming it's all the same to you, assuming you'd be very comfortable sharing, but also you don't need to share, I would add the information. Even though the story isn't about identity, the agent will still read it and note the protagonist's identity. At least there's the possibility that they will note that. And if it were me, I would want to know that the writer is writing from a place of lived experience. So it doesn't hurt to add and it only takes a line. So I don't see why not. That's, that's my take on it. Hello, just wanted to thank all three of you for taking the time to not only create my all-time favorite podcast, but to answer specific questions. So my question, if I've queried an agent in the past with a previous novel and they asked for a full or partial, but eventually passed, should I mention that when querying my current novel? Does it help or hurt my chances? Thanks so much. All right. So my answer to this one is I would, I would, always, always tell us if we have requested something in the past. It is so rare that we even do request things, as I'm sure you guys have figured out by now. It, it is a leg up actually to have had a request, whether it's a partial or whether it's a full, no matter what it is, please let us know. I, I really appreciate knowing that. And I do think it gives you a leg up. Hey, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. I wanted to start by thanking you for all the inspiration you provide through your wonderful podcast, I've recently gotten back into writing after a 20-year hiatus, and after submitting to some literary publications and magazines, I recently received an email from an editor letting me know that I've made a short list to publication. My question is, when is it appropriate to respond to editors in regarding your query, and when should you just sit tight and wait for them to follow up with you? Thanks again. Okay. I'm not sure I understand this question, to be honest. So do you mean like follow up with the editor who told you that you made the shortlist? If so, did their email have like a timeline as to when you could expect to hear about the next round? I would just read it carefully to be sure. And then also look up any mentions of timelines online. And if you really can't find anything, I feel like a two week period is, is fair to nudge someone in this situation. But I'm to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure if I understood the question. 
I think the question might've been a jumping off point. So it was like, oh, they had this thought about what happened to them. And then it's like, oh, that's making me think, when can I get in touch with editors? So that's kind of the link that I'm making. Really to me, the answer is always guidelines, follow everybody's guidelines. If it is uh, like a small press or an editorial staff at a journal, it, it will say, you know, either we'll get in touch with you or please, if you haven't heard in nine months, follow up. You, I know literary journals have quite long lead time. So really when in doubt, just always follow the guidelines on anybody's website. Hi, my name is Laura, and I just love your podcast. I have a question and also a suggestion. When I write queries, I'm always super focused on word count, and I am the same way when I'm listening to the queries featured on your podcast. Often, I will listen to a query and think, boy, that sounds great. And one of the three of you or all three of you will say, no, that that's too long. But I'm always wondering what the exact word count of the featured query is. And I think it would be really helpful to readers if you could give that word count before or after you read and critique the featured query so we know what a long query sounds like and a just right length query sounds like. Thank you again for what you do for writers. You've helped so many people. Bye-bye. All right. So our question about what is too long. I think this is a great idea. I think we should incorporate this because you're right. It is kind of spatially hard to understand. There are so many benefits to doing this program on a podcast as opposed to seeing it in front of you. But when you see it in front of you, you would be able to see exactly how big things are and how long they are and how many paragraphs. So yeah, I think this is this is great feedback. Thank you. I think your name was Laura. Thank you, Laura, for this feedback. And we will take this into consideration. Hello, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. My question is, I am currently querying, but I am also interning at a literary agency. Is this something I should include in my bio or would it be seen as a red flag? Thank you so much for your opinions. Oh, I would definitely not see this as a red flag. Like if you're comfortable, I'd include it. It tells me that you're interested in publishing beyond being a writer. Like I don't see it as a bad thing at all. So if you're comfortable, I would include it. Yeah, I think it makes you look pretty savvy. I will say I have kind of strong opinions about this in some ways because I was brought up to be like, you're either a writer or you're an agent. And now I know so many agents who do write. So I think the the kind of the table's been turned in this space. So I think I'm probably a bit of a dinosaur to be like, you have to be one or the other. Maybe it's just because I know that I could never be an agent and be an author, right? Because like, I only think in this agent hat. So yeah, I think I just have my own biases here, but I'm always blown away. There's a number of really talented agents who are also authors. Listen, notes on an execution, right? Like that, that is my mic Dan, drop yeah. argument. Yes. Right? I know, um, but so Carly, you could 100% write a novel if you wanted to. You don't have time to do it, <laughs> but you could do it. I'm sure I think of it. someday I will just like set aside NaNoWriMo and just like have to pound something out at some point in my life. It is not this year. It is not going to be next year. I don't know when it's going to be. Someday, I think maybe, maybe I'll have to block off November. Someday. You heard it here first. Carly will be an author someday. <laughs> okay. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Love the podcast. My writing life is hugely benefited from being a listener. 
I'm a romance author for an imprint of a big five publisher. It's historically been a digital first list, but it's moving away from that lately. Like many of the longest standing authors on the list, I am unagented. My books sell reasonably well, I get put forward for translation and foreign distribution, and I have a great relationship with my editor, publisher, and even some of the execs. However, I find myself wondering if I should start looking for an agent. The first reason is that I would like to diversify in the future in terms of genre. The second is that my publisher obviously isn't pitching film and TV, and I think my books would potentially be a good fit for that. My question is, what's the best way to approach an agent when in my position? I don't get to go to networking events because of where I live, so any advice is much appreciated. This is this is such a great, rich, complicated question, right? This in, this industry works in so many complex ways in terms of, you know, there are many very established authors who don't have agents. I know some very established authors who just have a literary attorney who just negotiates the contract and they don't have an agent, right? Like there's, there are so many ways to do this, but as you're kind of getting to it in your question, you're, you kind of understand that there are certain things that agents do that other people in your ecosystem don't do, such as the pitching for TV and film. So as an agent, I'm always going to advocate that authors have agents because we can kind of cover so many other areas that potentially aren't covered, maximize all types of revenue. You know, one of the things that agents can do for authors, especially if they're kind of coming on mid-career or later career, we can help go back and kind of figure out what's going on with those audio rights, right? Go back and help with TV film, make sure, you know, if the translation right haven't been used that we can kind of revert those back. As I said, right, there's just so many things agents think about on a regular basis about how we kind of help manage our author's careers, especially mid-career, I would just hate for you to be leaving money on the table, you know, with all of these subrights that potentially aren't executed. And as you said, right, like maybe, yeah, you've been with this imprint a really long time, but tides are changing. As you guys know, there's lots of mergers, lots of acquisitions, lots of editors leaving. And if you have this great relationship with your editor and all of a sudden one day they can leave, right? They give two weeks notice and they're gone. You know, you're going to have to have, you're going to have a big hole in your, in your life, in your career and agents can help fill that hole. So I'm always pro agent. So yes. And if you're looking for how to get an agent at this stage in your career, get referrals from author friends, right? Imprint friends. You can ask editors, you know, if you have this great longstanding relationship with your editor, you could say like, Hey, I know you've done lots of deals with agents. Is there anybody that comes to mind that you think could maybe be a good fit for me? Like as I move into the next stage of my career, because great editors want you to be well-represented you know, that's part of their author care. Really great editors understand that and, and that teamwork environment. So yeah, I would say ask around, ask around, but CC and I are always here. I mean, come on. <laughs> Yes, think of us. And listen, this is something Carly talked about in, in our retreat, actually. She mentioned, Carly, correct me if I'm wrong, that of all the ways you've signed people throughout your career, the slush pile has been the one that's most yielded results, I suppose. So there's always the slush pile too. Like definitely you're in a situation always. where you can ask for referrals, where you can talk to your editor. You can also just reach out to us, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, Cece's right. I, I have found the query slush pile system works. It works for a reason, right? You just kind of put in your subject heading, like established author looking for an agent, you know, explain kind of what you're looking for in a partnership, pick the agents that you think are, are doing a great job. So it might feel silly, perhaps. I don't know if silly is the right word to be kind of querying, you know, mid, mid career, but it gets the job done, right? That's where our eyeballs go as agents when we're looking in a kind of a talent acquisition space. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hi listeners, this is Robin Henry from Laterly.net. I've been listening to Bianca, Cece, and Carly ever since I got laid up with a bum foot. I love the tips and the author interviews and the way they nurture early career writers. I'm also an author accelerator certified book coach. Historical fiction, women's fiction, and mystery writers work with me to craft the compelling novels readers crave about people who've made a difference. I have a giveaway, especially for podcast listeners. It's a review of the first 20 pages or 5,000 words of your work in progress. Find out what's working for your opening and what might need a rethink. This prize includes a 30-minute coaching session to go over written feedback and brainstorm solutions and next steps. The giveaway ends October 31st. I hope you'll enter today on the podcast giveaway page.
Hi everyone, welcome back to another comps session where you send in your requests for comps and we get them answered for you. Now, as per usual, we have our favorite person back from East City Bookshop in Washington, D.C., Emily Summer. Emily, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. I love hearing what everyone's working on. Yeah, and who knows, these might be books that you will be selling in your store one day, so that makes it extra, extra exciting. Okay, so let's kick it off with the first one. Hi, everyone. I love the podcast. Thanks so much for everything you do for the writing community. I'm looking for help with comps for my LGBTQ plus romantic suspense novel, which is set in the theater industry. It's mostly comedic and swoony, but does touch on darker topics about power dynamics in the arts. It's a little like if the cult program Smash included a murder mystery, though that's a 10-year-old TV reference. So I'm having trouble covering the three parts of my story, the backstage showbiz tale, the murder mystery, and the gay romance with my comps. I'm currently using Boyfriend Material and The Charm Offensive, which both cover the gay romance and some of the zany workplace drama. I've also got Finley Donovan is Killing It, which I think is a pretty good match tonally in terms of recently heartbroken, juggling day-to-day life and a murder mystery with a dry sense of humor. But none of my comps speak to the backstage theater story. If there are any theater mysteries or gay theater romance mysteries I'm missing or anything else you could think of, I'm all ears. Thanks so much. Okay. I loved hearing about this first one, our LGBTQ romantic suspense, comedic mystery. I loved hearing tonally. It's similar to Finley Donovan, which I adored. And so did many other readers. I immediately thought about The Maid by Nita Prose, which I think tonally is very similar to Finley Donovan, funny, quirky, a singular voice. And because that is so focused on the inner workings of a hotel, I think it makes a really good comp, even though it doesn't have the theater angle, because it is sort of the backstage, behind the scenes, inner workings of a particular industry. So I would say The Made by Nita Prose is a great one. And then when we're talking specifically about some queer, sort of cozy, fun mysteries, a new one is called Renovated to Death by Frank Anthony Polito. And this is a pair of romantic partners who host and produce a renovation, like a home renovation show. And then there's a murder and they turn into detectives. So I think it'll have that same like quirky, fun side of the mystery. And then for something that is specifically set in the theater industry, There is a new mystery called A Killing in Costumes by Zach Bissonette. And this one I think is probably the most spot on comp because it is concerned with the theater industry. It is a queer mystery and it is going to have that same fun voice and tone as those that our author mentioned. Wonderful, Emily. Those sound absolutely delightful. Thank you. Okay, let's move on to the second one. I'm seeking comps for my dual POV women's fiction set in Oregon in 1891. It's an uplifting story about two women defying the odds and is based on true events. While the overall tone is empowering, it also explores sobering truths about the mistreatment of Native Americans. On the cusp of 30, Anne is unmarried and works with her father at the U.S. Land Office. When her father suffers a health setback and a prominent politician asks for her hand, these two events force Anne to confront her own desires. Carrie is a devoted reader of Society, a weekly column that covers fashion, weddings, and society news. After winning her dream job as a society reporter, Carrie is determined to forge alliances with the Grand Dame of Portland Society. But when she uncovers an ugly truth about the woman's family, her loyalties will be tested. 
Anne and Carrie's worlds collide when each are invited to the Cloudcap Inn, a ten-room alpine lodge on Mount Hood, for a week's day. Thanks in advance for your help. I love the podcast. Okay, so the second one is our dual POV women's fiction. We're in Oregon in the late 19th century. I would suggest The Cold Millions by Jess Walter. That's set in early 20th century Spokane, Washington. So it has that Pacific Northwest vibe. It is about brothers. It is not about two women, but it is concerned with sort of the underbelly of society and the tension between high society and the other people in the town who are running things. It is the birth of the labor movement. So it is a social focus. And I think that one sound, it's, and it's a great book. I should say it's a wonderful book. I only, I, I never suggest any duds. If I'm mentioning it, it's because I think people need to need to read it. And then I would suggest to make sure that we get the strong female voices angle, The Great Circle by Maggie Shipstead, which was one of my, it was probably my favorite novel of 2021 engrossing historical fiction, a brilliant, visceral setting, and just strong women that you're never going to forget. That was one of my favorites of 2021, too. I absolutely adored that book. Okay, number three. My name is Alana, and I'm requesting book comps for my YA mystery series set within a contemporary fantasy titled Call Me Witch. Eliza and Amelia are twins who never got along, but when Amelia vanishes into thin air, literally, she poofed out of existence in front of the entire school body, it's up to Eliza to find out what happened to her. Everyone, including the sheriff, believe it was Eliza who hexed her sister and used magic to make her disappear, but no one can prove it, and what's worse, Eliza can't disprove it either. Now, one year later, a series of possessions have targeted Eliza's former friends, and the sheriff has Eliza in his crosshairs. With the help of her new friends, a friendly ghost boy, and a spunky vamp, Eliza must find out who's behind these attacks before the sheriff and the DA can build a case against her and banish the Mystic Studies program from school altogether. The story is about a young girl who's always in no man's land. She's biracial, bisexual, and bimystic. Over the course of trying to find her sister, Eliza ends up finding her true self. While I've always thought of this series as having the overall tone and pacing of Veronica Mars with magical elements found in Buffy, I would love to have modern book comps from the last five years that could capture both the series and magical themes found throughout. Okay, so this author very helpfully says that the comps that she's thinking of are Veronica Mars and Buffy. But of course, we want something a little more recent and that is book focused. So anytime I hear someone mention Veronica Mars, I think of the brilliant YA novel, A Good Girl's Guide to Murder by Holly Jackson. It is as close as we've got to a Veronica Mars in a current book. So absolutely take a look at A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. I think that's an excellent comp because it is not so widely known and so huge that it's going to feel like you're shooting too high, but it's been very successful. So I think anyone in the YA sphere is going to know, oh, this is good. There are now three books in that series. So that's how well it has done. So absolutely A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. And then I would look at Sarah Gailey. I know I have recommended Sarah Gailey, their books on previous comp sessions, but it's because they have such an interesting voice and they are prolific. So one of Sarah Gailey's books, if you're looking at a queer fantasy uh, and it's got a quirky voice, chances are Sarah Gailey has written something that might hit the mark. For this one specifically, I would look at their YA book, When We Were Magic. So that's another case of magic gone wrong. It is young adults. There is a dead friend. It is darkly funny. And it's got those spunky Buffy vibes. So I think that one's an excellent one. The other Sarah Gailey title that I would recommend might be Magic for Liars because that's got a twin angle. So I think the twin angle will really resonate here. 
finally, I'm going to throw out one that is not magic and it is not fantasy based, not speculative, but it's called Just Your Local Bisexual Disaster by Andrea Mosqueda. And I feel like that might hit that description that we've got of our protagonist when our comps submitter said she's biracial, bisexual, and bi-mystic, and she's going through a lot. And I would I would take a look at Just Your Local Bisexual Disaster, one, just to enjoy the book and to see if any of the characterization and the realistic plot lines resonate with that one. Just that title alone makes me want to pick up that book, which right? again shows you how important titles are. Next one. Hi, Carly, Bianca, and Cece. Thanks very much to each of you for offering the segment on your show and also to the booksellers who are so generous with their time and knowledge. I'm looking for comps for my near-complete work of upmarket fiction. Just Our Luck will be an 80,000-word multi-POV story that follows seven protagonists and their households in the immediate aftermath of winning the National Lottery. The members of this neighbourhood syndicate came together over a desire to improve their neighbourhood, but each character also has a specific personal motivation that has driven their decision to take part. The novel charts a follow for each character examining the fears, desires, and urges present behind closed doors and questioning just how far someone will go for love, security, and status. I also wanted to ask more generally for any tips for how busy people can go about identifying comps. I'd love to spend my free time reading widely and voraciously, but between writing, working full-time, and parenting a toddler, I'm lucky to get in a chapter some days. Any tips? Thank you. Okay, this immediately sounded to me like a Frederick Bachman novel, which is, of course, high praise. And if that jumps out at whoever you're querying, that's going to be a good thing. For Frederick Bachman's most on-point title, I would probably suggest Anxious People. And I thought of his books because these are books where you will often get, in Anxious People particularly, you get lots of different people in the same community different points of view, and you're finding out sort of the inner workings of their lives. Like, what are they worried about? What are the secrets in their past that haunt them? But it's also very uplifting. I think that one sounds very on point for this upmarket book. Along those same lines, I would look at The Big Door Prize by M.O. Walsh, which I think I have probably mentioned on here before because I think it is One of the best pieces of upmarket fiction that I have read recently, it's about all the different people in a town. And again, you're getting a look at their inner workings. You're getting all these different points of view and you're seeing how different everybody is and what's really driving each person who's involved in the story. And I would suggest A Little Hope by Ethan Joyella, which is another wonderful upmarket novel that's very recent. I think it came out last year. And it's an it's another multi-POV where you're going to see all the different things that people in a community are dealing with. Awesome, Emily. Thank you. Okay, let's go to the next one. Thanks so much. I'm looking for comp titles for my queer literary novel that explores the messiness of identity. It's similar in tone to All This Could Be Different by Sarah Thinkum Matthews in Real Life by Brennan Taylor. Graduating in the wake of the 2008 recession, my protagonist finds herself unexpectedly jobless and living at home in a small suburban town outside of Boston. She thinks she'll finally get the attention from her parents she earned for growing up, but is once again overshadowed by her troubled little brother. When a job opportunity gives her the chance to move away, she leaves for a different life where she can finally be herself and throws herself into work at a local queer advocacy organization. 
with a charismatic non-binary partner by her side and a boisterous group of friends. She thinks she's finally gone away from her oppressive past, but soon finds herself burdened by the group's expectation of her as she tries to fit in. This is a book that explores themes of growing up amidst family secrets and societal pressures. Okay, so this one, right out of the gate, our submitter tells us that they're thinking about All This Could Be Different by Sarah Tankham Matthews and Real Life. I say, why mess with perfection? Those are brilliant comps. They're brand new. They're absolutely fantastic books. All This Could Be Different. I just read it in the last couple of weeks. It blew me away. If these are similar and this is what you're going for, I think that I I hear those two comps and I think I can't wait to get my hands on it. However, so I'm doing my job. I've got another couple. I would add Jonathan Escoffrey's If I Survive You, another National Book Award long-listed title along with All This Could Be Different. And I thought of that one because some of that book is concerned with the 2008 recession. And so you're really struggling with the economic climate of the country and the struggles of young people within that recession. So that sounds similar to what we're doing in this book. And then I would suggest a forthcoming novel called I Could Live Here Forever by Hannah Halperin, which I anticipate is going to do really well. I started it very idly. I just was flipping through it, did not intend to read it. And I couldn't put it down, but it's about a young woman in an MFA program in Wisconsin who meets a guy who is struggling with addiction. She is struggling with her family of origin and their relationship. How is she going to make her art, make a living, find her next step? So I think it has similar themes of identity, belonging, dealing with our families and and really finding a professional footing in the world. So I would look at that one as well. But again, all this could be different and real meets real life. Mwah, chef's kiss. It's perfect. This is an instance of our writers are starting to figure out this comes thing themselves. They really is- are. And almost all of the voicemails we got this time mentioned tone and voice, which makes this so much easier. So I love, I love that. I think that's probably the most important piece. You know, you don't have to have a a plot match, right? You don't want someone to have written your plot before. You yeah. just need to indicate who the reader is going to be and what yeah. readership is going to find this book. Who the target market is and where on the shelf this is going to sit. Yes. Now, for those of you who haven't submitted your requests yet, remember, go to our website, The Shit About Writing. Go to the Submit a Question page. You record a voice message for Emily or either ask a question for Carly, Cece or myself. You have a minute to do that and then you submit it and we'll get to it as soon as we can. Okay, next one. Thank you, literary goddesses. I'd love your help with my novel, A Bodega with a Name. It's a dual point of view literary novel or perhaps upmarket fiction alternating between 1994 and 2014. Temple Twentyman is in eighth grade. She's in charge of caring for her bed-bound, morbidly obese mother. She worries about her sister, Kanan, who's been spending time with a local business owner rumored to be a pedophile. What Temple really wants is to gain the affections of a boy. She thinks she can do that on their eighth grade class trip to Thunder Park. Sadly, while on that class trip to a dangerous New Jersey amusement park, Kanan is killed. And just a week later, Temple witnesses a murder at the bodega she lives above. 20 years later, Rachel Nelson recalls that time in her life and wonders if she could have prevented tragedy. Her version and Temple's version differ. Rachel feels sick on top of it. Is it guilt or something else chronic? My tone is a bit like Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman. And I have no other comps. I'd love your help. 
Okay. So for the next one, I am cheating a little, but that's because I want to plug one of my favorite authors, Liz Moore, who wrote a book about 10 years ago called Heft. And in the book Heft, there is an obese man and a young person whose lives are intertwined. And so as soon as I heard that this eighth grader is is taking care of her morbidly obese mom, I thought of Heft by Liz Moore. I think it is probably too old to be a useful comp, not to mention that Liz Moore's real breakout hit was later with Long Bright River. But any chance I can get to, you know, prop up Liz Moore and tell people, read, read all of Liz Moore's books. So Heft by Liz Moore, you know, might might speak to this writer somehow. The one that I think is most similar and would be an excellent comp based on structure and theme and the dual timelines where we've got 1994 and 2014 is The Long and Far Away Gone by Lou Burney, which is, it, it may be about six years old, six or seven years old now, but it is an outstanding book. It was at least an Edgar nominee, if not an Edgar winner, but it, it, it has a lot going on for it that's not a mystery. I don't shelve it in our mystery section, so don't let that scare you away. And in that, we have two different survivors of two different crimes that took place in Oklahoma City, I think I've got the city right, in the late 80s. And the, and there were teens at the time. One, a, a teen sister disappears from the county fair, so very reminiscent of what we heard in this blurb. And another, a teen is working at the local movie theater when there's an armed robbery that goes wrong and a bunch of his friends are killed. The present day piece is these survivors dealing with the aftermath and us figuring out what really happened. So I think structurally that would have a lot of similarities here. And it is also just a brilliant, brilliant book. Lou Burney is often asked to blurb. I see his blurbs on a lot of other books, which tell me that the industry knows that Lou Burney is a good one. And in terms of the Eleanor Oliphant tone and voice, I would suggest looking at all of Rufie Thorpe's brilliant books because she has that Gail Honeyman tone where the books are readable, quirky, funny, and yet deal with incredibly serious themes and struggles and trauma. I love everything that Rufie Thorpe has ever written. And then I would also look at Mary Lou is Everywhere by Sarah Elaine Smith, which this one might be like the heft. I'm not sure enough people read it for it to be a useful comp, but in terms of a great recommendation, it's a brilliant book. And I think it, I think it has some similarities here. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you. Okay. I think we've got what, four left? I think so. Okay. Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you so much for listening to my message. I am calling in to try to lock down some comps for my manuscript. The ones I have in my query letter currently were uh, Chuck Hogan's Prince of Thieves and Dan Brown's Angels and Demons, but an agent I spoke with suggested that they were too outdated. So the basic plot of my manuscript is that there are four bank robbers who are attacked by a, an unknown group. And as they struggle to escape and survive, they uncover a terrorist plot that they then are in a position to try and stop. As far as the tone, it has those heavier moments as they're uncovering the severity of this you know, massive plot, this terrorist attack. But it also has lighter moments you know, between the, the main characters, you know, snappy dialogue and, and lighter exchanges. So there is some humor element in it. But if there's anything that you could suggest that would be more modern, more up to date, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. So this one, we had a couple of older suggestions, Chuck Hogan's Prince of Thieves, Dan Brown's Angels and Demons. 
And because we've got some bank robbers who are turning into, you know, they have to foil these terrorists. I thought immediately of Karam Rahman's two books. He's written two books. The first is East of Hounslow and the second is Homegrown Hero. So East of Hounslow did well enough that he's already written a follow-up. And in East of Hounslow, a drug dealer becomes an MI5 spy. And so you've got that that same juxtaposition of a criminal who has to best many worse criminals. And I think it's going to have that same snappy dialogue that our submitter mentioned. It's not, you know, a heavy, extremely serious spy thriller. It's got a lot of movement and a lot of action. I would also suggest Blacktop Wasteland by S.A. Cosby. So that's not a book that that is concerned with terrorism, but it is a book where you've got a heist turned survival story and impeccably plotted action and suspense and movement. And people love that book. So I think that's a great comp in terms of just plot, movement and suspense. And then I would look at Mick Herron's Slow Horses series. So that's another you know action thriller, high spy stakes. But it's got a really enjoyable tone. And maybe our the spies who are going to foil all of these other people are a bit hapless. So there might be some similarities there. Wonderful. Okay, next one. Hi, this is Amy from Kansas City. I have to start by saying that this is absolutely the best podcast. And I'm always so delighted to see a new episode in my feed. I need help finding a few book comps for my historical romantic suspense novel set right after World War I in England. It's dual point of view and for an adult audience. My pitch. When Liesel accepts a housekeeping position in a remote manor house, she hopes to hide from the reporters who have stalked her since her husband's execution for treason. She doesn't expect to fall in love with the shell-shocked Lord Hathaway or prove he's innocent of murder. I'd say the overall tone and feel is very similar to an old school Mary Stewart book or Simone St. James's early books, but without the ghosts or the supernatural elements. Thank you so much for your help. Okay, the next one, we have our dual POV post-World War I book. I love anytime I hear that something is surrounding World War I because I feel like we got so much World War II for so long, although... I love that as well, so I shouldn't pick favorites. I would suggest right out of the gate, look at Shrines of Gaiety by Kate Atkinson. So Kate Atkinson, no one no one is better than Kate Atkinson at anything she does, but especially historical fiction. And her recent book, Shrines of Gaiety, which just came out last week, I believe, is a post-World War I book. It has a lot of similarities with her Jackson Brody mystery series, and it also deals with characters who are still shell-shocked and traumatized from the war. So I think character-wise and and setting and plot-wise, there are some similarities there. And then you mentioned you, not you, 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 the writer who wrote in to us, mentioned Simone St. James and Mary Stewart. I would look at Kate Morton's books for the historical fiction Manor House vibes. She has several. I would see if any of those feel particularly resonant. And then finally, I would throw out The Women in the Castle by Jessica Shattuck. So that is a World War II book, but it is about women after the war who are dealing with the crimes of their husbands. So I think it will have similarities with the female character in this book and just excellent historical fiction. Wonderful. Okay, number nine. 
Hello, Bianca and bookseller. Thank you so much for offering this. I just love hearing about comp titles. I'm looking for comps for my literary fiction novel about a woman whose husband dies and she's left to raise the child she loves but never wanted. There's a lot of interiority as it's told in first person present tense. It has similar tone to Elena Ferrante's Days of Abandonment, which also shares the grieving mother aspect. And the narration has similarities to Eileen by Otessa Moshfag for its frank narration. But both of these are older titles, and I could really use some newer comps. Thank you so, so much. I really appreciate this. Okay, so I think that the comps that are suggested here of Days of Abandonment by Elena Ferranti and Eileen by Otessa Moshfag and the frank voice in those books I think those are excellent comps, and I don't know that they, they wouldn't be too old for me, but of course, that's not my side of the business. So based on those and based on the subject matter of this woman who's dealing with the death of her husband, her grief, and maybe her mixed feelings about motherhood, in terms of tone and voice and style, I would look at Sheila Hetty, who writes about those things, Jenny Offal, and Elizabeth Strout. All of those women write in such a frank way and reckon with what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a mother, even when you don't know if you want to be. All of those are very interior literary voices. And if, if any of those resonate, I think the agents are going to want to, are going to want to know. And I think those are, I mean, I, I will read anything that is comped to any of those people. For specific titles, I would look at Brood by Jackie Polzin, which came out during the pandemic and I think did not get as much attention as it perhaps should have, although I think that probably people in the know would recognize the title and how wonderful it was, and more successfully, Want by Lynn Steger-Strong. So Lynn's subsequent novel is just about to come out, but Want is a very frank and interior exploration of money, marriage, motherhood, professional success. And it it really is inside one character's head while she grapples with all these things. And I think that would be an excellent comp. Yeah. And just for listeners in general, you know, we're often saying on the podcast, be careful of too much interiority. You need things happening. You need characters moving, et cetera. So if you are writing a book that's very you know, full of that interiority. That sounds like a great book to read to see how to do that really, really well, because that's incredibly difficult to pull off. Okay, next one. Hi, I'm asking about comps for my novel. It's an epic fantasy which takes place in a world overrun by The Walking Dead. Everyone protects themselves by living underneath magical barriers. The resource that charges these protective barriers is under strict control of a guild far more focused on profits than protecting the citizenry. Tonally, the book shifts slightly between four points of view, but tends toward assertive, sarcastic, and humorous with moments of earnestness. The four POVs range from a young mercenary trying to find his stride in his new profession, a young magic user trying to take his life into his own hands, an old assassin on a mission of revenge, and a politician willing to do anything to save the world. The intended audience is adult fantasy readers, and the novel features LGBT plus characters prominently. The comp titles I've found most similar so far are Tamsin Muir's Gideon the Ninth for its strong voice, and Kitty Rose Pool's There Will Come a Darkness for its multi-POV style and setting featuring an impending doom. I'm unsure if either of these are good picks, as Gideon is science fantasy, and There Will Come a Darkness is YA. Thank you for your help. 
Okay, so next we have an epic fantasy. And again, as Bianca said, our listeners are, your listeners, Bianca, are really learning how to do this because you've taught them so well. So we already have suggested comps of Gideon the Ninth and There Will Come a Darkness. I think those sound excellent. So I would not shy away from those. I would add to that list Blackfish City by Sam Miller. That is also a multi POV survival story. It is set in a dystopia. It has a number of queer characters and it concerns itself with how in this dystopia, the people in charge have been corrupted. How, what is the power structure? How are people to survive with trapped within this particular power structure? And so it seems like it concerns itself with some of the same themes. But I think because we've got this sort of dystopian, you know, the world is overrun with some pretty bad things. We've got queer characters, multi points of view. I think Blackfish City would be a really great one to include. Wonderful. Okay. Are we on our second last or our last one? Our last one. Okay. Here we go. Hello, friends. I'm Jess, a longtime listener and lover of the podcast. I'm seeking comps from my YA speculative novel that is part Melissa Albert's The Hazelwood, part Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows. I'd use these comps, but they were both quite successful and I don't want to look like I'm reaching. So are there newer, more specific titles for me to consider? Like The Hazelwood, my story features a female protagonist who has a complicated relationship with a mom who has magical secrets, but the tone of my story is more whimsical, less dark and creepy. And while my story features a group of smart-talking thieves and the formation of a found family like Six of Crows, my manuscript is dual rather than multi-POV. Finally, my story is set in a version of the real world where magic is mostly gone but still lingers in dusty corners. It features ancient manuscripts and a library dedicated to the preservation of magical texts that loosely echoes adult titles like The Ten Thousand Doors of January and A Discovery of Witches. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Okay, so again, we've got we've got someone who is very helpfully providing some comps right off the bat. And she wondered if Melissa Alberts, The Hazelwood, and Lee Bardugo might be too successful. I would say Lee Bardugo is pretty huge and that one you might want to stay away from that one just because I could see everyone who's writing any sort of YA speculative saying it's Lee Bardugo. I think Melissa Albert's The Hazelwood is specific enough and on point enough that I would I would probably include that one. I had already thought of Alex Harrow's The 10,000 Doors of January before this submitter mentioned it. So I think that one is a really great one to include. And then I would include, again, I'd look at Sarah Gailey, my favorite to mention here, and by Sanju Mandana, a brand new book called The Very Secret Society of Ir- Irregular Witches. So that's an adult title, but it has lots of YA crossover appeal. And I think that the complicated relationships with family and the magical powers and the sort of more whimsical voice might make this one a really good match. Wonderful, Emily. Thank you so, so much. As per usual, you've added a ton to my to be read pile. For our listeners, we're so grateful to Emily because she's an amazing, amazing resource. So get in your questions and we will try to have this session run once a month. So it may take us, you know, two or three weeks to get to it, but I promise we will get to it. Emily, thanks again for your expertise and knowledge. Thank you so much for having me. And I realized I forgot one thing because oh, yes. our, fourth, our fourth query today also asked a follow-up question, which was how busy people 
can look for and identify their own comps. And I had two suggestions for that that I meant to mention at the time. One, go to your local bookstore and ask your local booksellers. So the algorithm is not going to give you comps and the algorithm is not going to think outside the box and identify all all the particular titles that might have some appeal, but your local bookseller will. And you don't have to tell them you're looking for manuscript help, you know, or query letter help. You can just say, do you have anything that fits this criteria and describe whatever piece you're looking for? And they will be delighted to help you. Probably whatever you tell them, they'll be delighted to help you, but go to your local bookstore, please. And second, if there's one book that you know you want to comp, even if it's too old or whatever the case may be, look at that book, like physically look at the book and look at the blurbs that are on the cover because that author's editor has approached similar authors for blurbs. They want much like, you know, whoever the agent who's reading your query letter wants to know how to position your book. The blurbs on the cover help the reader position the book in their TBR pile. So see who is is mentioned alongside the one book or author that you do know and go from there. Excellent advice. And always, yes, go to your local indies, you know, speak to the booksellers. They are just so eager to help and they're just such an amazing, amazing resource. Okay, Emily, we will see you again next month. Thank you so much, Bianca. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is Susie Yang, and we're so glad that she could join us because Susie is the author of White Ivy, which was, of course, our pick for our spring meet of Books with Hooks book club, a book club for writers. Susie, welcome. Hi, Susie. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. I am going to fangirl with as much discretion as possible because I'm sure our listeners do not want to hear me gushing over you. But just so you know, you were a really big hit in our book club. Everyone really loved your novel. And they asked me to ask you all these questions, some of which I can't ask because it involves spoilers, but I'll ask you off the record once we're done recording. (laughs) So could you just give our listeners, anyone who has not read White Ivy, just an overall sense, like what is White Ivy about, whether you call it an elevator pitch or, or whatever else? Sure. So White Ivy follows the story of Ivy Lynn from when she's a teenager to her late 20s. And as a child, she sort of becomes obsessed with one of her classmates named Gideon Spire. And she really aspires sort of to be with him. And as she ages, they reconnect and she does everything in her power to marry into his very patrician wasp family. I think essentially this is a story of a girl who's willing to go to any lengths to get what she wants and what the consequences of those are. And it was sort of my aim to show why she wanted these things so badly and to kind of let the readers draw their own conclusion on if she really succeeded at getting what she wanted in the end. That is a really great way to put it. I have a question. (laughs) As I was dissecting your novel for our book club, I noticed that there were some fairy tale elements to the writing. Oh, interesting. Like the omniscient point of view and 
I, I mean, I don't remember the lines by heart now, but it's things like, so how did this girl become like a thief and a liar? Like right at the very right, beginning. Right, right. And it, it's, it's the language that it's the once upon a time language. Did you notice that as you were writing it? Not consciously, but I have to say, I love omniscient point of views. Like I'm a huge classic reader. So, you know, I'm thinking like Tolstoy, just like people, you know, I, I want to feel like I'm in good hands when I'm reading and the omniscient point of view is sort of, it's a little bit like truth telling in a way, you know, like John Steinbeck does this. And I love his work too. It, it, it's saying, you know, I know these people and I understand these people and I'm going to tell you about these people and who they are. And I find that comforting in some way because I think I tend to not trust first person point of view as much because I'm like, I don't really know if I should believe what you're saying, right? But there is something I like a little bit old fashioned, I would say about the omniscient point of view, but I like it. So subconsciously, I think I did try to um, zoom out on Ivy a little bit because I think if we're always so much in Ivy's head, there becomes this instance of like an unreliable narrator, you know, is Ivy really who she thinks she is? So I wanted to have that disconnect between who the reader thought you know, and understood Ivy to be and who Ivy understood herself to be. So that peaked through in the writing, but not necessarily like on a conscious choice level. Yeah. I think that's really interesting because I really think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned like the conscious versus unconscious. I don't know that you could have done that with third close to the degree that you did it here with, with this. I, I don't want to call it like straight up omniscient because we are very in very much in her head. There are very few instances of head hopping. I'm thinking about the scene where Nan wakes up and right. starts panicking and that leads her to go to Gideon's house. Well, she doesn't know she's going to Gideon's house, yeah. but you know, when she discovers that Ivy isn't at the sleepover that she thought she was. So mm-hmm. there are very few moments where you head hop. So it's almost like you use the omniscient to share two Ivies. The Ivy that she thinks she is, but like yeah. the big picture Ivy, does that make sense what I'm saying? <laughs> no, it makes a lot of sense. I've gotten in trouble actually with my editor for, you know, sometimes I'll sort of like pull out a little bit to say something and then she'll be like, okay, the author is inserting too much of herself into here. So I sort of had to pull back a little bit on that. So I think a lot of the earlier drafts, it was a little bit even more of my authorial voice kind of commenting on what's happening. And then we kind of dial that back. So we were more with Ivy. Yeah, I don't have any like logic <laughs> to what I did or what I didn't. It really was just um, in the moment. It was instincts and it worked so well. And I love that your editor said that. To our listeners, if you are attempting omniscient, I love what you just said, Susie, about stepping back a little bit and realizing that there's too much of the author on the page. So yes, it's about, it's about dosing and there's no formula because it's storytelling. But I think that's a really interesting way to look at. Okay, so you mentioned your editor. I want to know what your path to publication was. Like, take us back to Susie just finished the complete first draft. Mm -hmm. Did you look for an agent? Did you already have an agent when you wrote this? Like, what's the story there? Tell us. Yeah, I mean, so I feel like I have, I had the problem, which I'm sure so many writers have, which is that I've been trying to write my whole life. And I was really obsessed with writing a book. Like I was physically obsessed with writing a book. I wanted to, you know, I was that kid that would like take the paper and staple it together and like make a book. <laughs> and like, of course I would never finish the book and I would waste a lot of paper and I would get in trouble for wasting so much paper. One day I was like working in my real job and I thought, you know, I've been trying to write all of these chapter ones for so long. I must have a thousand chapter ones saved in my word. So I thought, let me give myself a year to finish the manuscript. And I knew I'm the sort of person, if I don't give myself like extreme pressure deadlines, like I'll just sort of get bored with the idea. So I had to just sort of like vomit it out of me kind of. So I did that. 
I edit as I go along, but then I also sort of like did, um, I took a month after I finished the manuscript to edit. And I would say at that point, when I had the manuscript, I thought, do I like try to go get an MFA? Do I create agents? But as I was writing, I found like really, really great like workshops. I was living in San Francisco at the time. I did a novel writing workshop with Glenn David Gold at the Grotto. I did like little weekend conferences at Sackett Street. I took a class and then I moved to New York. And that was when I applied to Tin House. So that summer when I was writing White Ivy, this was in July, I went to Tin House and they bring on agents to, I think you like have 10 minutes to pitch to them. And I think that summer there were like a handful of agents. So basically I queried all the agents who were at my tin house that summer. And Jenny, my agent, Jenny Furry Adler was one of them. And she sat next to me at lunch and she was like, you know, we're making conversation. And then of course she's like, what are you working on? And I pitched it to her. I think I said Asian American Edith Ward novel, you know, like a social climber novel. And she's like, great, you know, sounds good. <laughs> like when you're done, send it to me. And I remember being so motivated by that. Like I had to sort of like, you know, for her, it's probably just like to tell so many people this, but in my mind, I was like, someone is waiting to read my book, <laughs> you know? And that was like enormously motivating for me to finish. So that was July. And then I sent Jenny the manuscript in October and I had Googled, you know, how to find an agent. And I was sort of expecting, even if she liked it, I was sort of expecting her, her to be like, okay, well, there's like these 10,000 changes that we need to make and all this stuff. But she was like, oh, I think it's ready. Like, I'm just gonna like, you know, I'm going to like sell it. And I, or, I mean, you know, I want to work with you. And if you sign me, I'm going to sell it. And that was so alarming to me that I was like, you know, I was like, is this a scam? <laughs> like, I was like, how do, <laughs> because I'm not connected to anyone in the publishing industry. <laughs> you know, I don't have writer friends really. So to me, I was just like, I don't know. How do I know? Right. If this is like legitimate or not. I love how suspicious you are. <laughs> No, because I'm telling you, the best writers are always suspicious because you have to be to, to, to keep up with like motivations and misdirections and red herrings. So I love it. <laughs> That's a very nice way. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever heard about being a suspicious person. I think, yeah, I was like, this is probably too good to be true, right? So, so I actually emailed my teacher at Ten House that summer, who's Josh Ferris. And I was like, you know, have you heard of her? Like, what is happening? And then he was like, you know, really nice and give me advice. So yeah, I signed with Jenny. And then she, I think she went out with like a handful of editors and then we ended up selling to Mary Sue, like literally like a month later, like uh, Thanksgiving, I think. So that process was extremely quick. But then of course, the editing process afterward was like, you know, another two years, I would say a year and a half. Well, tell us about that. Like, what were the edits that Mary Sue recommended? Was there anything that you were like, I don't want to change this, but then you ended up changing something that surprised you? Our listeners are so curious to know what it's like to work with an editor, especially over the period of two years, because that's yeah. that's longer than, than, I don't want to say longer than usual, because what is even usual in this industry, but it is on the longer side. Right. I totally understand. I remember feeling the same way. Like, even the edits I got back from editor for the first time, there were a lot of shorthand and I had to google the shorthand you know like what does this mean like what is she asking me to do wait like um, what like what I'm trying to remember like you know even just like like the ways that she would mark up my pages and like her her like very authoritative red pen you know it'd be like circle and then like I don't know like a shorthand like sp dot or something you know what I mean like things like that I'm like what does that mean <laughs> you know that makes total like, sense like spelling copy, sp like for copy, spelling copy, or yeah copy editing shorthand like I had to I had this whole list of like copy editing shorthand like pulled up so I could like refer to that in terms of like what she was asking me to do um in terms of story edits I think there were a lot of changes originally there were three spire siblings <laughs> 
And she, there was a younger sister. So it was like Sylvia Gideon and then a younger sister. I think her name was Darcy. Um, Interesting. So Mary Sue thought, you know, let's combine the two sisters into one sister to make her a more complex character. So we did that. I think the main part of the edits that we spent on was the middle section with Ivy, sort of the childhood section before Ivy reconnects with Gideon. And that was just simply sort of like moving the story forward in a quicker pace. Like before, I think I spent a lot of time, like I'm the sort of person that will like, I will like write everything and I will just keep on writing every scene like like chronologically. And then Mary Sue's like, okay, we need to sort of like get to that story faster. We need to get to the adult section faster. So, so much of it was like, it almost felt like purifying the details to the essential ones that actually develop Ivy as a character, as opposed to dwelling with her. I had a lot of shoplifting scenes. I think I even wrote a version where her room were like breaking into someone's garage to steal something. So there was a lot of trial and error. And to be frank, I don't even know if that's, I mean, I, I do not think it's efficient, but I, I cannot write any other way. Like my brain is constantly thinking of 10,000 ways this could happen. Like this one thing could happen. And I always get pulled into like the new shinier version of a way something could happen. And I can't just settle for like a thing I've written. So if anything, Can I, I share think, an opinion? Yes. <laughs> Writing of this caliber is not efficient ever. <laughs> ever. That's not the, the goal here is not efficiency. The goal is not to protect your time, right? The goal is the, the work of art that you produced. And of course, it, of course, it wasn't efficient. Of course, That's it wasn't efficient. very reassuring because I, my personality is that I desire efficiency, right? I'm like extremely impatient. I am not one of those writers that like to write one sentence a day. Like I need to sort of get it out of me. But at the same time, like on the other side, I feel like I'm extremely perfectionist. So if I'm not like, if I think, if I can think of a different way to do it, I must try it. Like, I can't just tell myself, Susie, it's time to move on. Like you've already spent two years on this like one chapter. Like I have to try it. So um, that's why we did so many edits. So we did a lot of story edits. And then I think this was like draft like five or something with Mary Sue. And she was like, okay, this is pretty much done. Like you, you, we only need to do these like very light touches. And when she said that to me, I was like, we are almost done. Like I sort of had this like meltdown because I was like, but, but I'm not prepared for this to be like final, final. So I think I spent something like two months and I was like frantically trying to make all the perfectionist changes that I thought I wanted to make. And then I sent it back to her and she was like appalled. She was like, this is 40% different from the trap that I had sent you. And now we sort of have to like work with this monster that you've sort of created again. So then we did like, I think another two drafts after that or something. So I really feel so grateful for her that she's like so patient and she was not just like, throw this all away, this is bad. She actually really <laughs> wrangled with like every change that I made. And then we got to the, the final final where both of us were like, no more changes, <laughs> this is it. Yeah, I think if she had let me, I probably would have gone on changing it forever. I love that. She is such a rock star. Go Mary Sue. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so question. Book is ready. It comes out. Your debut author now. How does that feel? What was surprising in a good way? What was surprising, I guess, in not such a good way? Do you read your reviews? Tell us about that. Yeah, so, so my book came out 2020 November, like on election day. So it could not have been like a more tumultuous time. I remember the whole year feeling like metaphorically, like throwing my hands up in the air because everything is so out of your control, right? Like life is out of your control, COVID, everybody's at home. I was like, you know, quarantined in Cambridge in the UK. And so 
it all felt like so unreal. And then I was watching all the elections start happening from abroad. And then Mary Sue was like, your book is coming out on that day. And it's like, whatever. Yeah, why not? You know, why not election day 2020? Why not? <laughs> so, you know, I have not yet to this day done a real in-person event. I've never met like a, a reader in real life. Like it's all been virtual. It's all been through Zoom. So I have to say like, the whole craziness of being a real writer, like that sort of escaped me. Like It sort of felt like I met a lot of really nice, interesting people on Zoom and chat about the book. And then I kind of go back on my couch and like Netflix. So just the experience, I feel like it sort of felt unreal to me. And then it passed. And now I'm like, yeah, like nothing is different. Like I'm still just doing the same torturous writing I did for the first book. So I'm excited to actually like have a first in-person event, but I think to some degree, like I'm such a huge introvert. So in a way, I sort of appreciate the ability to kind of have, have gone through all that, but still like get to write and still not feel so overwhelmed by kind of like the shift from, you know, working by myself for eight hours a day to then like meeting people who have like read your book. I think that would have been extremely frightening for me. Yeah. And not very efficient since you like efficiency because yeah. It, it takes up a lot of time to to go to yeah. events in person, though, of course, there is that, that special magic of in-person events, too. You mentioned writing now. What are you what are you working on and when can I read it? This is all about me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I again, it's like that struggle. Like I want to be done so bad because I feel like I've had this idea and I've been wrangling with it gosh, since yeah, 2019 is when I had the idea. So it's about a family and it's about, I feel like when I look at the plot, it's about three siblings and it kind of deals with the relationship with their father and it deals with similar themes of like class and ethnicity and belonging and being the outsider. So I know what I want to say. And I think that was true for what I be too. Like I'm, I think some writers are like, I don't know what I want to say. And the joy of writing is a discovery. But for me, I'm like, the motivation for me to write is like, I have this burning need to express this thing, but there's infinite ways to express anything. So it's I'm, the packaging that you have to figure out. Like, how do you package what you want to say? Is that, is that yeah, fair? It's like the packaging. It's like the plot, right? Like at a high level, it's like the plot, the premise, who are these people, right? What, like, why are their personalities that way? Like why that per why that type of person? How does that personality add dynamic to the story? And then on a more granular level, even first scene, how do I begin? What is the most interesting? I want to write about this family's life, right? What is the starting point? What is the most interesting way to gain sympathy for them? And then to kind of set the expectation for the story. There's like a million things. Because I'm like the sort of person that I'll spend like two years writing the first 50 pages a thousand times. And if I can get that to a point where I feel like I can't possibly think of another way to do this and it's, a, it's good, then I think that the last 80% of the book comes really quickly to me because I do have a firm grasp of where I wanted to go. But it's really the setup that like, I just cannot stop working on. <laughs> I cannot tell you guys, like for this book, for the second book, I must have written thousands of pages by now, but it's like, and to other people, like to my agent, to Jenny, she's like, I've sent her a few versions and she's like, these are like different books. And I'm like, no, Jenny, in my mind, they're the same book <laughs> because I'm trying to write the same story. She's like, but they're completely different, Susie. I'm like, I know for you, <laughs> it must be like, this is a different novel. But for me, I'm like still grappling with the same things. So it's even just, do I begin in childhood? Do I begin when they're adults? Do I begin with 
which sibling to begin with and what order. So just playing around with those over and over again. And just when I think I have something, I'm like, this is good. I'll be like, wait, I thought of a better way to do it. And I, and it might not be a better way, but I have to try it. I feel like I'm crazy. I'm like stuck in that infinite loop where it's like impossible to make myself like stop. Yeah. That's, that's where I am now in book two. (laughs) I can't wait to read book two. So chop, chop. (laughs) Okay. So you mentioned characters in white Ivy and Ivy is not a fair answer. What was your favorite character to write? And who's the character who you think is the most like unlikable to you? Mm. Not saying they're unlikable to other people, but like essentially like the person you'd want to hang out with the most and the person that you'd want to hang out with the least. Ivy does not count. Yeah, 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 sure. The one who was most interesting to write, you know, I have to say I had a really good time writing the Dave and Liana scene, the one where she was at that barbecue and she was like, sort of just in that garden and everybody was just like milling around and she was like overwhelmed with all of the signals and she was trying to figure out like where Gideon fit into this world and I just found because it's so nuanced and she's like meeting new people and it's like a world that's foreign to her and I just love reading scenes like that in other books even like social gatherings like in real life you just I love people watching, you know, and you're trying to figure out like who knows who and who and the, what people really feel about each other, you know, and what's not being said. And I think people are so singular when you don't, when they're like strangers to you. And so they're little ticks and things like that, that may be entirely normal. You find very strange because you don't know the context. So I had a really good time writing that scene. I had a really good time writing the beach house scenes. I mean, we had to cut a lot of the beach house scenes because it was like <laughs> too long. Like I think I had such, so many more scenes. I think there was at one point I had like a polo scene in Newport. That was really fun. Ooh, I would have wanted to read a polo. <laughs> was yeah. the cat always a part of the beach house scenes? Yeah, the cat was. I love cats. I just think like a really good description of pets is really fun. So yeah, the Spire family, that was really interesting. Like Poppy and Ted and just their like mannerisms. Like I love comedy manners. So I think anybody- You are not answering my question. Oh, sorry. Okay, 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 okay. (laughs) No, this is fun. But like one character Um, that you'd hang out with the most and one with the least. (laughs) Okay. No, because you were trying to get away from like having to pick favorites. (laughs) No, I'd probably say Sylvia. I would say Sylvia because I think she's the most affected character. Like I think she is the most- She's the person who has the most affectations, at least in my, in my point of view. Yeah. Um, so it was really fun because you never really know what she means. And she's so, you know what I mean? She's so cruel in certain ways. And I had enormous she's fun writing very, her. very cruel and yeah. so interesting and so yeah. layered. It makes so much sense that she's actually two people that you combined. Yeah. It makes so much yeah. sense. And her relationship <laughs> with Gideon, obviously so, so touching and yet so messed up in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so who would you want to hang out with the least? The person I would want to hang out with the least is Gideon. <laughs> Fair. I Fair. really, yeah, he was tough to write. I truly had to work really hard to figure out like why I'd be liked him <laughs> and to make him not such a snooze and such a bore. And even though, but he had to sort of be a snooze and a bore to the reader, but like I still had to make it, you know, believable that he would represent this great person to Ivy. So it was, it, it was very, I did not enjoy writing Gideon scenes. You did a great job of that because. And I think so much of it comes from the the way you set up the first pages. This is why like mm-hmm. you saying that you care so much about those first pages makes so much sense because mm-hmm. as a reader, a huge part of the reason why Ivy was so drawn to him had to do with her childhood because yeah. we all know that that first crush 
you know, yeah. th that's something no one ever forgets. That that stays with every human on planet Earth forever. Yeah. You can forget a whole bunch of things that happened to you as an adult, but those formative things as, as a child, they just make such a huge imprint. And so the foundation was really solid. And I also think that you didn't write him as much like Sylvia in many ways, a cruel snob. He, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. at the party, he approaches her and asks mm -hmm, her mm -hmm. if she remembers him. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, he says yeah. things like, I want to bottle up the way you look at me. Like there are these little moments of vulnerability that do make you go, oh, but at the same time, like, yeah, Ivy, he is so boring. <laughs> I want yeah. to be like, come on, Ivy. <laughs> yeah. I wanted him to be sort of like, like in real life, like your friend's boyfriend, who you don't understand yeah. why she's so obsessed with him, but like, yes. it's her life. But at the same time, you get why she is. Like, you don't right, get why exactly. someone would yeah. be, but you're like, no, I get that. Do you have any resources that you use as a writer, whether it's a thesaurus or like anything, anything like favorite craft resources that you'd recommend? Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I don't use thesaurus, I just Google stuff, but like, you know, synonyms, you know, I'm constantly Googling synonyms if I can't think of the right word. I would say one book I go back to a lot is this book called Art and Fear. And that was recommended to me by a writing teacher like many, many years ago. And it's not necessarily even about writing. It's just about making art, but it's so reassuring because there's so many times when I'm writing and I feel like it doesn't matter what I'm doing is completely insignificant or it feels like I'm literally making stuff up, <laughs> which is what fiction writers have to do. But that book makes it so, I don't know, it feels like you're not alone. It feels like what you're feeling a million people have felt before. And it gives really good advice about how to get through like writing slumps. So one story that I have sort of fully embraced and it's resonated with me just because that's the style of writer I am. It's about like making pots. Have you heard of this story? It's like a ceramics class. So there's a teacher who teaches a ceramics class and he divides his students into two groups and they're making like vases, like pots. And so he tells the first group, he's like, your grade is going to be based on how good your pot is. So you just you like work all semester and you just like make one perfect pot and then we'll grade you on that one pot depending on how great it is. And then for the second group, he says, your grade is purely based on how many pots you make. So the more pots you make, the better your grade will be. And so the two groups go off and do it. And then at the very end, like he found that the group that was told to make, like their grade was based on how many pots you made, all their pots were better than the group that had spent all their time working on one pot. And like that resonated with me so much because when I was starting writing, I felt like I had to write like the perfect novel. You know what I mean? It was like, I had so many ambitions for this novel. I wanted to be like amazing in all these thousands of ways. And that was like crippling because I, then I thought I can't actually just write. And you're putting all of your eggs in one basket too. Yeah. And you're just as like, opposed to focusing on practicing. Exactly. And essentially that story just means like, just produce, just write. Like you can't be better until you just write, like write a thousand words and don't be precious about it. Just don't be like, oh, but this one paragraph, like we're all, we're like human beings with like many years to live. Like we're gonna have like a million paragraphs and a million sentences. So just keep on producing, keep on making pots. And if you keep on doing that, like at a certain point, everything you write will be good. It'll just be a matter of like, then refining the pot. So that story stuck with me, but that whole book is so great. So for any writers, like, yeah, I have like a little paperback copy and I go back to it all the time. And there's another book I have to recommend, which is called, the same teacher recommended this to me. It's called How to Write a Damn Good Novel. And it sounds so like kitschy kind of, but it is so great for fundamentals. At a certain point in writing my second book, I had written so many pages and so many scenes that I had lost all sight of the finish line. And I was just like, what is a novel? <laughs> like, I did not know what a novel was anymore. I was like, what, what is a novel? <laughs> like, I 
I just forgot what a novel was. Like, I was like, there's infinite ways for a novel. What is a novel? How do you structure a novel? Like, can anything be a novel? Like, could not tell you from beginning to end what I was doing. So that book is like back to storytelling fundamentals. And it's so useful, not in like a prescriptive, like you must follow these rules kind of way, but it allowed me to think about what each scene did. Like if I make one decision, for example, like do I start the story in an action scene or do I start it right before like a really pivotal scene? And he'll say, you want to like let readers settle into a character to gain sympathy. And then we understand the context of a bad event happening to them, right? So it's like, if you say, oh, Joe, he hates violence and he's really afraid of blood. And then he has to go get his like blood, you know, blood taken. Then you understand the context. But if you start with a scene of like, Joe is getting shot. It's like, what is happening? Who is Joe, right? So it's not saying you have to do one or the other, but he like sort of outlines the effect it has on the reader. And I found that enormously helpful to make decisions because I was stuck in that loop where I couldn't even decide anymore, like what was good or what wasn't good. And so he kind of goes through character plot, you know, where to start the story and just really good fundamentals when you're completely lost and you're like, I don't really know why I'm doing this. And he can explain, this is how you write a dramatic novel that is really gripping for the reader. So those two books are so helpful in terms of resources. You wrote such a masterpiece. And I will say that it's a little refreshing to hear that even someone like you with your talent, like sometimes you just have to go back to basics. So I think, I think it'll really resonate with our listeners because everyone feels overwhelmed from time to time. And so to have those go-to resources, it can be a comfort and a huge help. So I have a question, no spoilers, but you'll know what I'm talking about. And so will anyone else who read this novel, if you have not read White Ivy, what are you even doing? Like go buy it now. The decision Ivy makes at the end. Mm -hmm. Was that always the case? Did Mm -hmm. that always happen in every single draft? Yeah, that was always the case. So the one thing that's never changed through all the drafts was the plot. I knew that I wanted to write a social climbing story. And I knew that I wanted to write a very bittersweet, very unsettling ending. I tend to like books that way. I don't necessarily like things to be super wrapped up. And I also just feel like there's something to be said for me, at least when I leave a book and I feel more unsettled, I I find that I tend to think more about books like that, where it's sad. Like it's sad. I don't know. I, I like books that make me cry. I like books that make me feel disturbed and not in a way that feels like the author just trying to shock me for shock's sake, but a way that feels earned. This ending felt right for that character. And it disturbs me, but it feels like, yes, this probably would have happened. And there's so many, and I think real life is crazier than fiction. So the plot of the book has always been the same. And that was really probably what got me through writing the book. (laughs) Like if I didn't have such a strong desire to kind of write this story from beginning to end in that fashion, I probably at a certain point in the middle have been like, this is not good. I'm just going to work on something else. So I love knowing that. So you knew the very end, right from the very beginning? Yeah, I knew the, Interesting. the whole plot was all the beats of the book. Yeah, that was that has never changed. since. Did I you it. write it out in an outline or did you just have it in your head? I just had it in my head, you know, because if you think about the plot, it's not necessarily super complicated, right? But I just knew that that was where Ivy was going to end up. Very cool. For our final question, could you please recommend us a book? It could be a book you're excited about or a book that you recently read and loved or an all-time favorite. It could be anything. Okay. So I'll recommend a book I'm rereading because I'm a rereader and 
if I'm rereading a book more than once, that's how I know I really love the book. So I'll recommend Just Kids by Patti Smith. It's actually a memoir, but it's so, I mean, I like, I love fiction, right? But it reads like the best, like Elena Fronte book. It's so evocative. It's so tender. And it's also a coming of age story. It's set in New York City. It's about music and it's about sort of two people trying to find their own way in the world. And I've read this. This is my, I want to say this is my fourth time rereading this book. And I find that I do tend to go back to a mood that a book captures. And if I'm in, you know, if I want to feel that mood, then I will pick up that book. So I recommend that one. Thank you so much, Susie, for joining us. This was such a pleasure. And thank you so much for writing White Ivy. And please let us know as soon as you have an arc for your next book, because we want to promote it. Thank you for having me. I hope it was helpful. And keep on going, all the writers out there, for real. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host, Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. 
And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.